Hey, Nick. So this year we have to do MFM as Chiefs, and I don't feel super comfortable about my second trimester ultrasounds. Yeah, you know, I think it's one of those skills that, you know, depending on where you're in residency and how much exposure you get to it, it can be really hard to know what exactly you're looking for. The great news is I can actually go online now on the OBG project and look at their second trimester ultrasound atlas, which shows me what normal looks like. It's an excellent, excellent resource that's available for free through OBG First for all chief residents. So if you're like Nick and I and you're a fourth year OBGYN resident, go ahead and go on our website where you can find a link. You can sign up and like Nick said, you can get OBG First for one whole year free. Along with that second trimester ultrasound atlas. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Beth Cronin. Dr. Cronin is a clinical associate professor of OBGYN, and she'll be talking to us today about caring for transgender patients. Welcome, Dr. Cronin. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Cronin, thanks for joining us again. What are the goals or objectives for our chat today? So I think the two big things are to talk about the importance of providing inclusive care for transgender and gender nonconforming patients, as well as kind of going over the parts of, as an OBGYN, how we can provi- provide affirmative care uh, for these patients and thing, tips and tricks and things that we can be doing in our office uh, to make our office more welcoming. So let's start from the beginning, uh, Dr. Cronin, to kind of help us establish some definitions. So mm-hmm. first of all, What is the difference between sex and gender? Absolutely. It's great to start there. Um, So sex is basically what we do in the delivery room. Sex is the presence or absence of specific anatomy. This commonly is referred to as the sex assigned at birth. So meaning male has a penis, female has a vagina. Mm -hmm. Whereas gender is really a social construct. Gender is the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a culture um, would associate with either males or females. Thinking about that in in that context really does help to kind of separate the two and why it's important to make those distinctions. Got it. And kind of, I guess, breaking in, what are the the definitions of transgender, cisgender, gender nonconforming? So if we start by talking about what gender identity is, so gender identity is a person's internal sense of their gender. So meaning, am I male? Am I female? Am I neither? Am I both? Every person has a gender identity. It's that those who identify as cisgender don't necessarily think of that on a day-to-day basis. So what cisgender means is somebody whose gender identity aligns with that sex assigned at birth, whereas trans transgender is somebody whose gender identity is different from that was what was assigned at birth. Um, common terms would be a transgender woman, which is a somebody whose sex assigned at birth was male and identifies as a woman or female. And transgender man is somebody whose sex assigned at birth is female and identifies as a transgender male. Then there's also the term gender nonconforming. So this is somebody whose gender expression differs from the societal norms of males or females. Some folks may identify... Um, is gender queer, gender non-binary, um, 
generally is somebody whose gender identity falls outside the traditional binary of male and female. Um, some folks may use gender variant, gender expansive, and then gender fluid as well as somebody who feels that their gender identity is not fixed. So it's really getting away from that firm male-female binary um, when you're thinking about um, caring for all of your patients. So what are the numbers that we're looking at, Dr. Kernan? Um, how many people would you say or have been surveyed that identify as transgender or gender nonconforming? So there's there's some data there is some data out there um, in so Herman et al did a study they look in the U S population they estimated about 0.7 percent of youth um, ages thirteen to seventeen identify um, somewhere in the transgender umbrella um, and similarly similar percentages in adults from ages eighteen to twenty four um, and then about 0.5% of adults over the age of 65 identify as trans. There's about, so that leads about 150,000 youth and 1.4 million adults over the age of 18 who identify as trans in the U.S. currently. Got it. And I guess, you no, know, when we start to think about OBGYNs as providers of you no know, transgender care, now, what exactly, what should we keep in mind about the importance of inclusivity in our care philosophy? So one of the things that's most important is thinking about, is understanding the discrimination that this community faces. The most recent transgender discrimination survey was published in 2015. It was 28,000 respondents. Um, the numbers are really shocking. Um, about 10% noted directed violence from a family member within the past year. 30% had been fired, denied promotion, or had workplace maltreatment in the past year. An additional 46% had been verbally harassed. Almost 60% avoided public restroom use due to the fear of confrontation. And 10% in the past year had been sexually assaulted, with 47% of individuals responding to the survey noted um, history of sexual assault in their lifetime. 40% of these individuals had had a suicide attempt. And so these numbers tell us that patients need care. They need access to care when you get down into the more granular data in the study. Um, in this survey, they found that patients had had really negative experiences in physicians' offices. And so if somebody's coming to you for a specific problem and they are misgendered or they are maltreated or they feel unwelcome, the chances of them going back to any office gets you, is even less. And so that's you know making sure that we're doing what we can to be able to provide inclusive, welcoming care so that patients are willing and able to access care is super important. Absolutely. So I think knowing that information now, I think we should ask some questions about the role of us and the role of OBGYN in the care of transgender patients. So what are some barriers that we're facing? So some of the barriers I have kind of worked on and tried to fix in our setting, you know, is kind of just thinking about what we do in general. So we, ACOG is women, we are women's health providers. It's right in our motto. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that we need to eliminate that, but kind of think about where, how do we care for all the patients that need to be cared for by us? A lot of trans patients are going to need GYN care. They need pap smears. They need STD screening. They need contraception. They may need surgery. Um, these are all things that we do, and we are the experts in doing that. And so thinking about how do you make your office welcoming? How do you make it so that anyone and everyone feels welcome when they come in? There's a lot of stigma um, in all, you know, in this patient population and kind of thinking about 
when I was working at Women and Infants, I had to, I realized I could not write a patient a work note on our letterhead because they would know their, their um, supervisor could say, well, why are you having surgery or why are you having an appointment at a women's hospital? And so little things like that, that realizing, okay, is, you know, is my practice inclusive and how can I, you know, make it as welcoming as possible? Being, you know, thinking about insurance coverage, depending on where you live in the country, there may be, may or may not be coverage for surgical treatment, for hormonal treatment, um, and realize, you know, knowing what those hoops are and knowing how to help your patients um, navigate that is really important. And I guess kind of one thing that you alluded to there was making the office trans inclusive. Mm -hmm. No, I think that probably, you know, if you looked at residency programs, I don't know if people survey this or not, but I'm sure there is a large difference between what some programs have and what some programs don't have. What are things that our listeners can take to their offices now to try and like stop that divide? So I think... What's important is realizing you can't fix it all in one night. This is, you know, it definitely takes a lot of work and a lot of time and getting a lot of buy-in. And so realizing, taking a look at, you know, I think it really starts with when the patient first calls your office. And so making sure that your staff are trained, making sure that your staff feel empowered and educated and that they're able to ask the questions and feel comfortable understanding all of that, because they're the ones that are fielding a call from a patient who a male patient who's asking for a gynecologist. And if they don't understand that male patients might be calling your office, they're going to be really off-putting to that patient. Not that it's their fault, but that they don't understand. Um, and so doing that education up front is really, really important. And then continuing to do it and explaining why certain things are important, why different patients need different things. Um, so in addition to the office training, it's then looking at your forms. If you have written intake forms or computerized intake forms, making sure they're inclusive for all patients, making sure that you're asking about patient sexual orientation, you're asking about gender identity, you're thinking about, do I want you know, check boxes, blank, form, blank lines, how do you want people to answer the, that information, and explaining to folks why you're asking those questions and that you're asking them of everybody. Don't just assume, okay, well, I think this patient should have those questions answered. We really should be collecting and asking this data for every single patient that walks into our office. Having gender-neutral restrooms, um, making sure that patients don't have to pick a restroom based on their gender is important when they come into your office. And in a GYN, OBGYN office, that sometimes is hard. Um, you know, a lot of our restrooms have been traditionally women's restrooms. And then, you know, maybe there's a male restroom down the hall. And so thinking about what that would be like for your trans patient um, is really important. Other kind of potential issues that are, you know, not necessarily easily fixable, but thinking, looking through your medical record, your EHR and kind of thinking, okay, how do we navigate this? How are there data points to put in there. If the patient hasn't legally transitioned, hasn't legally changed their name, how do I make sure that the secretary who's calling to book their appointment books their, calls them by their correct name um, when they're calling? How do you document pronouns in the chart? How do you navigate those things? Which while in a perfect world, you just switch it, but we, you know, a lot of times you can't do that with insurance, um, you know, depending on how your billing cycle and billing process works. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's kind of looking at that granular data and figuring out in detail and figuring out how do you, how can you improve all of those things? 
So I, I think, you know, here we're talking a lot about some systems issues, right, and changing those systems issues. What about us personally as OBGYN providers? What are things that we can be doing to um, potentially be helping our transgender patients? So meaning in terms of what patients might be coming to see you for? Right, exactly. Okay. So to first talk about for transgender men, thinking about okay, what screening might this patient need? So you want to be screening based on the parts that are present, um, rather regardless of their gender identity. So you want to say, okay, does this patient have breasts? May, do they fit the criteria that they need mammography screening? Should they have breast exams? Do they have a cervix? Do they need cervical cancer screening? Have they been vaccinated against HPV? Um, so kind of thinking there for the screening for transgender women, thinking about what type of breast cancer, if they've had, if they're on estrogen, if they've had um, breast augmentation, what kinds of, what are the guidelines for them? What will, when will they need um, breast cancer screening specifically? Generally, the recommendation for them is um, 10 years on hormones um, and or over the age of 50 um, with screening about every two years. Those guidelines continue to change, um, but definitely, you know, making sure that people are getting the screening that they need. Then thinking about things we do on a date, you know, daily as well, like contraception. So if your patient is having sex with somebody that has sperm, they need to be counseled on birth control. Um, they need to be counseled on what their risks are for getting pregnant if they still have a uterus. And so giving them the options that are out there, you know, really all contraceptive methods are available in options for trans men. Um, but it's kind of discussing, as you would with any patient, what their individual desires are um, and kind of what is going to work best for them. Making sure that people know that they have options and accessibility to abortion if that's something that they would need if they were to accidentally get pregnant. And then you may have some patients that would like to be pregnant. And there are currently, if you have a trans male who's currently on testosterone who comes to you and says, you know, I'm, we're thinking about how we want to start our family and maybe I'll get pregnant, kind of knowing how to counsel that patient, uh, making sure that they know that they should be off testosterone prior to trying to conceive um, and discussing not being on the testosterone due to the teratogenic effects um, and talking about kind of what that process of pregnancy may be like for them if that's what they choose. Let's dive in a little bit more to cancer screening for this population in particular. Are there other things that we don't always think about even with our cis female patients that come into our office? So, you know, when you're thinking about if you have a a trans male coming into your office who needs um, cervical cancer screening, realizing that for this patient, this may be a very challenging exam. This may be the last place they ever want to be, but understand that this is important. You know, we do so many pelvic exams and so many pap smears that it becomes very routine. Um, and while it never should be routine in day in and day out, because this could be, this is a challenging exam for many people, um, realizing that you can offer to not do the exam today. You can come, you can talk about the exam. You can talk about the reasons we do it. You can come back a different day, offering the patient an anxiolytic, having, if they would like to take that before they come back, kind of thinking about how the exam is going to be most comfortable for patients. There is a study um, that came out of Fenway Health looking at self-collected HPV, and um, it had 
while it's not exactly the same as provider protect provider collected HPV, they did get good results. I think for your patients that are going to have significant dysphoria related to a pelvic exam, discussing with them those results and offering them that option to do self-collected HPV is a great option. Talking with all your, you know, as we do with any patient, making sure they've had HPV vaccination um, and explaining why we do cervical cancer screening and, um, you know, I've had patients come in and ask, request a hysterectomy just because they don't want to get cancer and helping people to understand that cervical cancer screening, the frequency that it only is every three years under 30, after every five years over 30, that it's something that, you know, you could, you could fit into other um, testing if they needed anesthesia for it and things like that, that it's definitely, you can work with your individual patient and not just apply our broad strokes guidelines. You talked a little bit about breast cancer screening, Dr. Cronin, but what about patients who have had surgery and have had their breasts removed? So for uh, trans male who's had um, top surgery or um, mastectomy and um, chest reconstruction, a lot of times they have not had all of the breast tissue removed and there may be residual breast tissue. The reality is, is having a discussion with your patient about clinical exams. Um, there's While there's limited tissue there, there's probably... There, there's data that mammography screening is probably not necessary. And really what probably makes the most sense is doing just clinical exam based on a specific finding, not that you need to be doing routine um, chest exams. And Dr. Cronin, I guess another one, no, I don't know, truthfully, I've never had a trans woman come to the office to see me, but if that were the case, no, what things do I need to think about that may pertain to them that I don't do usually as an OBGYN? It's a great question, Nick. Um, so, so for trans women um, who have had uh, vaginoplasty and reconstructive surgery, you're gonna you need to do screening the same as you would for cisgender men. So treating based on the organs that are present um, or absent in this case. So if they've had their testicles removed, you wouldn't you don't need to worry about anything there. There is um, with the prostate if. You know, if you've removed the testicles and you have the estrogen on board, there's likely a reduced risk of cancer and things like BPH. But talking with their primary care provider about screening, you know, we don't do routine prostate screening in our office, but just knowing that that's something that you know, they may want to be discussing with their primary. Um, and then in terms of, as I mentioned, the breast cancer data is very limited, um, you know, Generally, the thought is that the risk of breast cancer in trans women is much lower um, than in cisgender female patients, but the mammography every two years, once you're hit 50 plus five to 10 years of feminizing hormone use, there's no reason I've been asked, you know, well, should you be doing pap smears of the vagina? Um, there's no, we don't do routine pap smears in a cis woman after the cervix is gone. There's no cervix um, to be doing pap smears for. Um, and so just, you know, exams based on symptoms, that if the patient's having a new complaint, doing um, an exam to figure out and evaluate what's going on. What about transitioning, Dr. Kernan? I feel like as OBGYNs, we may have patients that come to us and tell us, you know, I'm thinking about transitioning. And truthfully, this is not something that I know anything about. Where do we get started, first of all? So if you have a patient who you've seen kind of for routine annual exams, and then at their next yearly visit and as you're asking them questions and they say, you know, I actually am thinking about transitioning. I'm have changed my name. I'm using different pronouns, you know, starting thing, things to think about are 
thinking about asking where they are with their menses and are, are their periods causing dysphoria? Is there, you know, are there things that you could do to help them um, manage and help with cessation of menses? So things like putting them on Depo-Provera. Um, if they need contraception, you could also do things like IUDs and things like that, depending on what their periods are doing. And then having a conversation about testosterone. If you are comfortable starting testosterone, that's something you can do. A lot of um, kind of knowing what your local resources is, is kind of the best thing. If there is a gender clinic locally um, to get patients integrated care, getting getting them access to everything and getting them access to support groups, if that's something that's important. Um, but you can start testosterone in your office. There are great guidelines through WPATH um, and also through the um, UCSF has an excellent resource to help you kind of figure out dosing, how to you know teach patients how to do it, um, and it's really not complicated um, and requires some lab monitoring at the beginning, but generally it's not anything significantly different from what we do routinely in the office. Patients may also um, come to you in the midst of transition or after transition with concerns of irregular bleeding. They may come in with atrophy or pain during intercourse. Um, they may have ongoing pelvic pain. And so thinking about and working up and evaluating those um, as you would in any patient, but with that lens of, okay, is this test necessary? Do I need to do this in the office? Is there something else? Um, or, you know, can I get, can I do this under anesthesia if that's going to be significantly um, troublesome or causing dysphoria for that patient? And then for um, trans women, it's the conversation about transition would be surrounding putting them on estrogen, spironolactone, um, other medications to try to um, sometimes people use progesterone depending on kind of what goals you're looking for. Um, and then it's a conversation about surgery and if they're having plans um, that's out of, you know, uh, vaginoplasty is out of my scope um, of surgeries that I do. And so I use my local network um, and refer within and um, definitely kind of knowing who's in your area has been one of the most helpful things because um, then you know who to call and ask your questions to. You hear rumors sometimes about psychological or psychiatric evaluations prior to transitioning. What should we know about that? So the WPATH guidelines still recommend or discuss having consultation from um, two therapists or two quote-unquote letters. Um, really the standard of or the kind of more standard of care in the community currently is especially for hormones that you're having an informed consent conversation and process with your patient um, and explaining to them the risks, the process, what this is going to be like, and making sure that they understand and that somebody doesn't need, we don't need a gatekeeper. Um, you don't need somebody to approve um, starting hormones. The issue with surgery, so I do a lot of hysterectomies for trans men. Um, the issue is a lot of insurance companies. So in Rhode Island, our insurance, state insurance, our insurance is mandated to cover hysterectomy um, for trans individuals. But the insurance companies often require these two letters. 
and it can't it has to be it can't be from me it can't be from their primary care provider it needs to be from a therapist or a psychologist or somebody who's treating their mental health um this doesn't need to be somebody that they've been seeing for long periods of time but that's you know some of those issues are hoops we need to jump through for insurance coverage and that's going to vary depending on where you are Thank you so much for this amazing summary of um, taking care of transgender patients, uh, Dr. Kernan. Obviously, there's a lot more information out there and a lot more that we need to learn. Where else can our listeners go um, to get more information? So ACOG actually has put out um, a transgender healthcare curriculum. They have these training modules entitled Improving OBGYN Care for the Transgender Non-Binary Individual. They were um, developed by Dr. Straussma from the University of Michigan. Um, They're outstanding. There's five modules that you can go through and work through your own pace and kind of breaks down um, everything. Um, You can get them right through the ACOG website. There's also um, the UCSF um, Transgender Health Program has this excellent clinician resource that you I reference frequently um, that you can kind of go to for any of your in you know individual patient questions and kind of find um, help and resources on their website so hopefully those will help thank you so much dr Kernan. this has been um, an amazing summary so nick why don't we go ahead and summarize so again today we reviewed care for transgender and gender non-conforming patients We started out defining sex versus gender, and again, briefly, sex is a biological construct, meaning what we identify in the delivery room um, as male or female, whereas gender is a social construct, the expression of gender, and that is not necessarily a binary expression of male or female. That can be something in between or something different. We then talked about um, the role of OBGYN in the care of transgender patients, and we identified multiple barriers of care that transgender patients have, including um, just in the ACOG mission of talking about how we are all women's health providers, Um, and similarly finding finding insurance coverage as well as fears of being stigmatized and the lack of training of just people going into OBGYN. And we also talked a little bit about how we can systemically make our office is more trans-inclusive. Finally, we talked about some things with clinical screening that OBGYN should know, um, whether trans men, trans women, or cis men or women present to your office. Um, Again, you want to screen the parts that are present regardless of the gender identity, and that's the general principle. Um, There are certain cancer screening things that we did discuss today, including cervical cancer screenings, breast cancer screening for trans men and trans women, and then talking as well about pregnancy, contraceptive, and abortion access for these patients. And finally, we also talked about transitioning and talking to our patients about transitioning, starting things like testosterone um, and management of things that could give them gender dysphoria, such as managing their abnormal uterine bleeding or pelvic pain or atrophy. And we also talked a little bit about um, managing patients um, and doing hysterectomies and things like that. Again, on our website, there'll be multiple resources posted for you. Um, Note that the ACOG training modules on transgender and non-binary patient care, um, as well as the UCSF guidelines will all be available for review. Um, and we'll post our show notes for this episode so that may be of help to you guys as well. All right, guys. Once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. 
So if you like this episode today, go online, give us five-star rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. You can check us out on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, on Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, and also on Patreon, where you can give us some support and maybe get a shout out on the show at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Outlines, show notes, and resources can be found for every single episode at www.creogsovercoffee.com. Do you want to hear a specific episode or have some corrections for a previous episode or just want to send us an email? You can email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 